This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Healthcare Triage, The David Pakman Show, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, The Show, The Majority Report, and activism from the Drug Policy Alliance. This is an episode I thought about bailing on many times. There's just no way to talk about marijuana without somebody completely misinterpreting what I say. Some of you are going to call me a fascist for saying anything bad about pot at all. Others are going to attack me for not coming down on it hard enough. So I'm going to cloak myself, as I always do, in the power of data. Marijuana works by affecting the brain. It's a drug, like many others, with different effects on different people. The active ingredient is called tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. THC bonds to protein-specific receptors in the brain to produce a number of results. It can have a mild sedative effect, and it can also lower your inhibitions. Marijuana can increase your pulse, lower your blood pressure, and increase your appetite. It can also interfere with short-term memory, lower your reaction time, and make you unsteady on your feet. But so can lots of other things that we like to eat, drink, or smoke. The real question is whether it's dangerous enough to be made illegal. And that's where the screaming usually starts. There's no evidence that marijuana causes a physical dependency, like heroin does. Some argue, though, that it can become psychologically addictive. Some will argue that the smoke is carcinogenic and causes lung cancer or respiratory disease. Others argue that regular use can affect the immune system. Still more argue that it increases the chance of developing a psychotic illness. But as I point out again and again in many of these videos, lots of things in life have both a benefit and a harm. No one should be under the illusion that marijuana has no harms. The question that we should care about is how much harm is there in marijuana? And does that harm outweigh the benefits so much that it should be made illegal? And now the benefits. There's a growing body of evidence that marijuana has use in many medical conditions to improve quality of life. And you need only talk to one of the gazillion marijuana users out there to hear about its other benefits as well. Moreover, there are lots of things in the world that can absolutely harm us that are totally legal. The two most obvious choices are tobacco and alcohol. Both of these substances are regulated, but legal in most of the world. They can provide us with a useful benchmark against which we can compare marijuana. Don't blame the messenger. I'm just telling you what the science says. To the research! Two years ago, a study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, investigating the effects of marijuana and tobacco on pulmonary function. Researchers followed a cohort of more than 5,000 men and women over 20 years. They wanted to see how smoking tobacco and marijuana affected lung health. What did they find? Not surprisingly, tobacco use had significant negative effects on lung function. Marijuana use, though, had none. No lung effects at all. They couldn't even show that very high use of marijuana was bad for lung function, although the study wasn't powered for that specific analysis. Their conclusions, and I quote from the Journal of the American Medical Association, Marijuana may have beneficial effects on pain control, appetite, mood, and management of other chronic symptoms. Our findings suggest that occasional use of marijuana for these or other purposes may not be associated with adverse consequences on pulmonary function. Tobacco totally does have adverse consequences on pulmonary function. Almost in the same week, the CDC published a report on binge drinking in adults in the United States. The results were sort of shocking. More than one in six adults in the United States is a binge drinker of alcohol. Those that do binge drink do so on average more than four times a month. And when they do, they have about eight drinks on average. 
More than 28% of binge drinkers were young adults, 18 to 24 years old, who had more than nine drinks on average when binging. But elderly binge drinkers, or those older than 65, drank the most often, about five and a half times per month. Excessive alcohol use accounted for an estimated 80,000 deaths in every year of the study. The estimated economic cost of this damage was more than $223 billion in 2006 alone. Another study was published in 1990 that described a cohort of more than 45,000 Swedes that were followed for 15 years. There was no increase in mortality in those who used marijuana after controlling for other factors. Another study was published in 1997 in the American Journal of Public Health that followed more than 65,000 people in the United States aged 15 to 49 years old. They found that marijuana use had no effect at all on mortality in women and no effect on non-AIDS mortality in men either. So let's review. Tobacco adversely impacts lung function and perfectly legal. Binge drinking of alcohol? Common, dangerous, costly to society. Also, totally legal. Marijuana, no impact on lung function, no impact on mortality, almost always illegal. I'm not arguing that marijuana should be sold in the aisles of drugstores or supermarkets. But here, and in many other parts of the world, you need a good reason to make something illegal. There are lots of things that are dangerous, but regulated. We don't let kids buy tobacco or alcohol. Totally makes sense. The same should apply to marijuana. We don't let people drive under the influence of alcohol. Totally makes sense. The same should apply to marijuana, which has been shown to impair drivers significantly as well. There was even a meta-analysis published in the BMJ in 2011 confirming that, and I believe the results. But it's hard to continue to make the argument that the freedom we enjoy should cover tobacco and alcohol, yet not extend to marijuana. There's plenty of evidence that the former are unhealthy and are consumed at our own risk. The evidence against marijuana is thin. A man has received a 13-year prison sentence for having two joints worth of pot. This is a 49-year-old African-American father of seven. He's been sentenced to 13 years in jail for possessing what is essentially the amount of marijuana that would go into two joints, two marijuana cigarettes. And we're talking about Bernard Noble, who's a resident of New Orleans. He's now in a Louisiana prison. And the Orleans Parish Public Defenders have been campaigning to free Noble, saying on their website, Bernard Noble, a 49-year-old native of New Orleans and father of seven children, is currently serving 13.3 years uh, in the Jackson Parish Correctional Center in jo Jonesboro, Louisiana. His crime? Possession of 2.8 grams, not ounces, 2.8 grams of marijuana, this is roughly, as I said, enough marijuana to roll two joints, less than is now legal in more and more states. For this, Bernard Noble has been separated from his family that he's been actively working to support, overpaying his child support, and being the kind of father we all hope a man would be.
This was a mandatory minimum sentence, and there is n I have no expectation, maybe you disagree, I have no expectation at all that the Louisiana governor, Republican Bobby Jindal, is going to grant any sort of clemency to Bernard Noble anytime soon. He is sort of a right-wing tool of grandiose ignorance who is not going to alienate voters in any way, and this would be a move that would alienate many of his potential supporters. This story crosses so many issues. Generally, of course it's about the war on drugs and the failure of the war on drugs, the uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, bankrupt nature of these attempts at um, supposedly increasing public safety when we know that the basis of the war on drugs was out-and-out out racism in the wake of the 1960s civil rights movement, but it's also about the disproportionate application of nonviolent drug sentences depending on race, depending on class, depending on your ability to hire a great lawyer. And it's also a story about mandatory minimum sentences, which is something that we have talked about cri critically for many years, and we really need to examine once again the entire concept of mandatory minimum sentences. And lastly, even though only 10%, roughly 8 to 10% of U.S. prisoners are held by for-profit prisons, corporate influence on prisons is a big deal because of those mandatory minimums. Private prison companies like CCA, which I believe is a, a Corrections Corporation of America, something like that, they lobby hard for mandatory minimums because the more set in stone or on paper it is that people must go to prison for X amount of time, the more, the bigger the pool is, so to speak, of people that can make money sitting in prison for these private prison corporations. So, so it, it's, this story is a huge story with various implications. And as we step back, I think the key thing to remember is what was said by the Orleans Parish uh, uh, Board, which is this is an amount of marijuana that is not illegal in many states, and uh, not, not illegal in terms of decriminalization, and flat out legal recreationally in inc an increasing amount of states, and 13.3 years in prison with no benefit to society. Let's be honest, this is a man who was working for his family. Now that his family no longer has his financial support, isn't that going to lead to a worse situation for that family? Aren't these the types of situations where you all of a sudden lose all income that can lead to people making bad decisions for themselves and their loved ones? There is no social benefit to imprisoning this man for 13 years for 2.8 grams of marijuana, and it just could not be more clearly outlined by, by this story. Well, Chris Matthews, I don't know if you know, I like to call him Chris Hardball. He hosts a new show that is supposed to inform people oh, about really? topics. I, I hadn't heard about that. I didn't know it was a is, new show. Is this new or 
I am assuming this isn't Hardball you're talking about. No, this is about. Chris Hardball. Yes. Oh, okay. Oh. I didn't realize it was. I thought it was sort of a. Well, he's on a he's on a like network here. He's on what they call a cable news network. Oh. Mm-hmm. MS stands for Microsoft, and NBC stands for d Defense Contractor. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he's trying to inform the people. Uh, that's what his job to do is inform people. But uh, guess what? The opposite happens, and we get old gray-haired men still afraid of the munchies talking about pot. Uh -oh. So here is, here is, because this all started back in January when Barack Obama said that the sentencing for marijuana laws, putting black and Mexican kids in jail for marijuana is a bad thing, and that he has admitted to smoking pot, as, as the, I think the last three presidents have all admitted to smoking pot, and so they didn't go to jail. So why do we have to put poor kids in jail for it? And uh, so he made that statement. Peter uh, Peter Lawford's kid mm -hmm. uh, comes on with Patrick. Chris, Chris Lawford. Chris Lawford, yeah. Yes. Uh, and uh, so here we go. Here's what Chris Matthews has to say about uh, what President Obama said about marijuana. The fact is, I don't think he's right on this one. He doesn't think the president is right on this one, Frank. Because I think people have addictive personalities, and some people react to freedom differently than others, and we better be ready for it, because it's coming now. That's the best argument he can come up with, because people have addictive personalities, and some people react to freedom differently than others. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. That literally, the, some people react to freedom? In a bad way, so we can't give them what? freedom. You know, yeah, you can't. And though he, Chris Matthews knows about this uh, about addiction because he's addicted to bullshit. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Chris Matthews was stone cold sober when he went on and on about how great the mission accomplished photo op was. <laughs> yes, yes. He, he probably should have been high back then. Well, yeah, well, you mean back when he said, so we already knew what Chris Matthews' view on freedom was back during the Iraq War when he said that everybody likes George W. Bush except for the whack jobs. Right. Yeah, that was his view on freedom. Yeah. Okay. The, the Phil Donahue's of the world. The real shocker is yeah. that when it comes to legalizing pot, like every other issue, Chris Matthews, totally gutless. <laughs> Complete shocker. So now Tweedy throws it to Peter Lawford's son, who's almost as dumb as Chris Matthews. He starts out okay, but quickly reveals his stupid, out-of-touch, completely wrong, and backward old man thinking about marijuana. Here, he starts out okay. Here we go. Yeah, well, there's no question, Chris. I mean, the, the two most damaging drugs on the planet are both legal. Alcohol and tobacco. We don't. Okay, good start. Yeah. Recognition that the drugs that are legal are worse. I like and where more, this is going. Are more damaging to the individual should. and society than pot. Sounds so right. logically, I'm expecting him to say that we should legalize weed. But here he zags. Don't need another legal drug. We don't know. We don't. All the evidence. We don't need another legal drug. The straw men of all straw men arguments. No one is saying. You know what I think we need, Dave? We need another legal drug. <laughs> Hey, how about marijuana? Let's try to make that one legal. <laughs> Just pick a name out of the pack. Yeah. Psilocybin, magic mushroom. No, no, we'll go marijuana because we need another. No. People are saying that the way we deal with our illegal drugs now is counterproductive, that putting people in jail for marijuana actually causes more harm to society than marijuana. So that's what they're saying. So again, thanks for the straw man. But did you, did you hear what he said? We don't all the all the here. Well, I'll play it again. No, we don't. All the evidence isn't in on marijuana. All the oh. evidence not in on marijuana. Yep, you we know we do have all the evidence in on tobacco. Yeah, <laughs> on cigarettes and liquor. Yeah. all the evidence is in. It's horrible and it kills you. Let's make it legal. But uh. we don't have the evidence in on marijuana, Frank, because they've only had a million years to study it.
<laughs> we don't need one more legal drug because that would just unclog our uh, court system <laughs> and put less people in jail and cost the uh, uh, country much less money. So we don't need that. Why? We, and we shouldn't legalize a drug that is healthier than alcohol, which might help people and which people are using anyway, because um, somehow that would be wrong. I don't know. But if marijuana does 1% of the damage to this society that booze has done, Chris Matthews will say, I told you so. <laughs> I can't believe that this is being said by someone whose father was so delightful in scenes with June Allison. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh. Okay, so Harry's got some more to say. Here's Peter Lawford's case. I agree with the president in terms of the consequences for some population groups as a result of this drug being illegal. And I what he just said was, I agree that yeah, we put together we put black and Mexicans in prison for marijuana and not white kids. That's what he just. But he didn't say it that way. There are some population. Some population. You mean the population you're not a part of, or your kids? You mean that population? Okay, here we go. I also think that, you know, quite frankly, if alcohol was illegal today, it wouldn't be legalized. It is a very damaging drug, and we need to we need to look at that also. So he just so he just made the case for prohibition being a great solution to the dangers of alcohol, and somehow the word moron just doesn't seem to sum these guys up, does it? Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. When Colorado legalized marijuana for recreational use, they did one of the smartest things possible, especially when it comes to the state's infrastructure and education. In fact, I have statistics to prove it. So according to uh, reports, Colorado actually collected a whopping $2.3 million in excise taxes on the sale of recreational marijuana during the first month of 2015. That's not the first year. First month of 2015, that's 10 times the tax revenue generated in January of last year. And remember, this is just the excise tax. It doesn't include uh, licensing, which also costs money or brings in money for the state. doesn't even include sales tax, which people have to pay for marijuana. So there's a bunch of money coming into the state, and they're like, wow, why didn't we do this sooner? So last year, during the first month of sales, the... Um, the school fund totaled $195,318. So there's a huge disparity there. Like, why is it that this year, in one month, it was $2.3 million? Well, it turns out that there were only 40 legal marijuana dispensaries um, in January of uh, 2013. By uh, January of 2014, there were 300. So we're seeing dispensaries popping up all over the place, and then people are buying their recreational weed, and they're enjoying it. So uh, the this, this state is bringing in quite a bit of money.
So I love that it's going towards public schools and construction fees. So, you know, all the time they told us, oh, my God, if you smoke pot, you know, you'll never make it through school. <laughs> It'll ruin your life, etc." It turns out pot's the thing that's saving schools. Yeah. And, and all across the country, what, what they're doing is they're cutting income taxes at the state level like they did in Kansas. It's destroying their economy. It's destroying their tax base. And then they're having to cut hundreds of millions of dollars from their education, as they did in New Jersey, Wisconsin, and Kansas. Turns out what you could do to save that educational system is legalize weed. Yeah, and if you did that and you put it back into schools, it's a win-win. I hope that they keep spending that money on education. I'm just worried that somewhere down the line they're going to use the money for something stupid. But for once, you're hearing about a state funneling money to public education, especially during a time when a lot of politicians are taking money out of public education, whether it's you know uh, grade schools or even community colleges or state universities. So this is all really great news. I hope it continues going toward a good cause. Well, you're on to something, Anna, because the part of the funds that don't go to, to schools go to things such as substance abuse programs. That's good. That's mm-hmm. also great. Mm-hmm. Um, medical research and police training. Hmm. Uh, okay, now we're beginning to like, well, no, because remember, they're going to lose a lot of money. The cops are across Colorado because they don't get to seize the assets as much as they used to under the old laws, right? Yeah. So if you had a little bit of weed in your car, they get to take your car, and then they sell it, and they make a lot of money, right? So now they're giving some of that money back from the marijuana taxes to the cops to make for up for training. police training, <laughs> right? So if that becomes a bigger and bigger part of the pie, and then you've, we've got the problem that you're worried about. But for the moment being, nothing wrong with police training. Of course, that's a good thing. I wish they trained them a lot more and appropriately. Uh, and it seems to be going to largely good causes. Let's hope it stays that way. So this is like, the, so they're raising money for schools through marijuana, which is like a twist on the old thing. This is like a baked sale, which is a little different. <laughs> oh, yeah. By the That's way, speaking good. of the well, I mean, they jumped from less than 200,000 to several million in one year. I mean, how many more jumps before they're no longer these little businesses that we need to defend and they become the big businesses that make so much they can buy Republican politicians and then they're like, well, we got to cut these taxes on these pot dealers. I can't be that far off, honestly. But it's so funny that that's what's funding our education, right? We use a lottery money to fund our education, so gambling and now marijuana. Why not prostitution? Why don't we, you know, pretty soon you go, hey, how how did you guys pay for your education? Oh, from uh, a lot of huffing. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of people we tax to huff paint and now a lot of people are huffing and uh we really got a lot of great schools if, if people would just yeah. do a little bit more meth yeah we really could kick it up a notch uh, we, we get back some some of the humanities programs in the high schools I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now! Our guest is Johan Hari. Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs is his book. I want to turn right now to the Canadian physician, Dr. Gabor Mate, author of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. I interviewed him in 2012. 
Can you talk about this whole approach of criminalization versus harm reduction? How you think addicts should be treated and how they are in the United States and Canada? Well, the, the first point to get there is that if people who become severe addicts, as shown by all the studies, were for the most part abused children, then we realize that the war on drugs is actually waged against people that were abused from the moment they were born or from an early age on. In other words, we're punishing people for having been abused. That's the first point. The second point is, is that the research clearly shows that the biggest driver of addictive relapse and addictive behavior is actually stress. In North America right now, because of the economic crisis, a lot of people are eating junk food because junk foods release endorphins and dopamine in the brain. So that stress drives addiction. Now imagine a situation where we're trying to figure out how to help addicts. Would we come up with a system that stresses them to the max? Who would design a system that ostracizes, marginalizes, impoverishes, and ensures the disease of the addict and hope through that system to rehabilitate large numbers? It can't be done. In other words, the so-called war on drugs, which is the new drugs are points out um, is a war on people actually entrenches addiction deeply furthermore it uh, institutionalizes people in facilities where the care is very there's no care we call it a correctional system but it doesn't correct anything it's a punitive system so people suffer more and then they come out and of course they're more entrenched in their addiction than they were in the in. That's Gabor Mate, the Canadian physician, best-selling author, columnist in Canada, who, uh, who was for years worked at uh, the only injection clinic, I think, in, in, in Canada, Johan yeah. Hari. Gabor taught me so much on the downtown east side when I spent time with him there and from his amazing writing. I think one of the fascinating things about Gabor is Gabor was himself a product of the, the, the trauma that he talks about. Gabor was smuggled out of the Budapest ghetto in the middle of the Holocaust. His mother literally hands him to a Christian stranger and says, take my baby, we're going to be killed, take my baby. And she was right, her parents, well, she was wrong about herself, but her parents were being murdered in Auschwitz at that moment. And as Gabor started to work with addicts on the downtown east side, he noticed something, which is, obviously when he got older, which was they'd all had these horrifically traumatic childhoods, like really disturbed. And Gabor himself had these quite strong addictive impulses. He would abandon women in the middle of labor, run out and buy loads of CDs, which doesn't sound so harmful, but you know, over time was problematic. And it's interesting because the, there's very strong evidence, which again I learned from Gabor, that childhood trauma, there's something called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which found that for every traumatic event that happens to a child, they're two to four times more likely to grow up to be an injecting drug user. So stronger link between childhood trauma and addiction than there is between obesity and diabetes. This is really powerful. And um, I think that that's very related to what we were talking about earlier about Rat Park. If, you're a, if you have a very traumatic childhood, it's much harder to form trusting bonds with the world. It's much harder to connect with the people around you. You're afraid of the world. You find it difficult and challenging. You're much more likely to be isolated. You're much more likely to be like the rats in the first cage than the bonded, connected rats in the second cage. So I think that's where the connection comes. And it's a reason, a yet another reason, why we need to be really compassionate. If you think about Billie Holiday, she's raped when she's a child, she's prostituted when she's a child. She needed to stun her grief, you know, and her pain.
Tell the story of Dr. Henry Smith-Williams. Oh, this story blew me away. Henry Smith-Williams was a doctor in California at the very birth of the drug. What well, we forget this now, but drugs were legal, right? He treated people when you would go to your local corner store, the equivalent of CVS, and you would buy opiate-based products or cocaine-based products. And he had patients who were addicts, and they went and bought their drugs, and they were somewhat like alcoholics today. It was problematic. No one would say it was a good thing, but they were no more likely to be criminals than anyone else. They didn't have, you know, they almost all had jobs. And then drugs are banned. And what he sees is suddenly huge transfer to, well, drugs don't disappear when you ban them. They're transferred to armed criminal gangs. Those armed criminal gangs kill each other, kill people to get in the way. But also they massively jack up the price by like a thousand percent was the increase because you've got to pay a pretty big premium if you're asking people to risk going to prison. And suddenly these addicts would have to prostitute themselves or steal in order to get it. The health of addicts massively deteriorated, huge numbers of them started to die. But what's incredible about Henry Smith Williams is he kind of sees it all coming. He writes this amazing book called Drug Addicts Are Human Beings in which he says, you know, we would never do this, but if we were so foolish as to carry this policy for another 50 years, we'll have a $5 billion smuggling industry in the United States. He was right to almost the exact year. And the yeah. same man who destroys Billy Holiday, Harry Anslinger, destroys Henry Smith And explain Williams. again how Henry Anslinger destroys Billy Holiday. Well, Harry Anslinger sends agents to stalk her. And he was? He was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. So the, he's basically the founder of the modern war on drugs. He destroys Billie Holiday, he destroys Henry Smith Williams. He creates the marijuana hysteria that persists to this day. Very interesting. He had initially said, when he takes over the Department of Prohibition, and it's got nothing to do because prohibition is ending, he'd initially said cannabis isn't very harmful, they've got no problem with it. Suddenly he announces cannabis is worse than heroin. When he realizes it's going to give his department a purpose, he latches onto a really fascinating case of a boy called Victor Licata in Florida, who I think he was in his early 20s, and he hacked his family's death with an axe. And, Har and Henry, uh, sorry, Harry Anslinger announced, this is what will happen if you use marijuana. You'll hack your family's death with an axe. He announces that, you know, it's, uh, I mean, you read the statements from him and it's kind of incredible. It's a huge hysteria led by Anslinger in the Fox News of its day, Hearst newspapers, announcing this. Years later, someone goes back and looks at the psychiatric records of this guy. There's no evidence he even used marijuana. His family had congenital insanity. They'd been advised to put him in a sanitarium a year before, and they wanted to keep him at home. But that hysteria around marijuana persists to this day. Who benefits from prohibition? It's a great story that tells us exactly who benefits. Right at the birth of the drug war, in, 100 years ago, when they're banning drugs, they deliberately leave, senators deliberately leave a loophole in the law which says, this doesn't apply to addicts. Addicts can go to their doctor and they can get whatever drugs they're addicted to, right? It's a very specifically designed loophole. And it's shut down state by state by Harry Anslinger. And one of the last states to hold out is California because it was hugely popular. The mayor of Los Angeles goes and stands in front of the doctor's clinics and says, you will not shut this down. You know, this works for us. And then it was shut down. I tell a story in the book of why it was shut down, which blew my mind. The local Chinese drug gangs were furious that in Nevada, the addicts had to go and buy drugs from drug dealers. But in California, they could go to doctors like Henry Smith Williams. So the local, local Chinese drug gangs bribed the narcotics agents to introduce the war on drugs, to enforce the drug war, because it meant that suddenly all these people have to come to them and buy in the illegal market. So right from the start, 
criminals are not only the only people who benefit from the war on drugs, they literally paid for it to be introduced. And it was really striking to me at the other end of the drug war when I was uh, interviewing people uh, who led the Colorado campaign to legalize. You know, they would go on the radio and say, look, we should legalize drugs because it will bankrupt the cartels. And some of the radio hosts would say to them, you can't say that on the radio. We're scared of the cartels. They'll threaten us if you talk about legalization. So both at the birth of the drug war and at the end of the drug war, it works for criminal gangs. They are the only people who have ever won from this war. What were you most surprised by, Johan? Oh, God. I think there was one story that really... I went to Arizona, as we mentioned, and I interviewed this amazing woman called Donna Leone Ham, who works on prisoners' rights. And I asked her one of my stock questions, which is, tell me about something that shocked you. She's going down this list of stuff, and in the middle she said, there was the time they put that woman in a cage and cooked her. That was quite bad. And then she carried on, and I said, I did the facial expression you just did. I said, can we go back a second? There was a woman called Marsha Powell, about whom nothing, very little was known when I started researching the book. She was a meth addict, and she'd spent many, in her 40s, and she'd spent many years in and out of prison because, for either for having meth or for prostituting herself to get meth. And one day in 2009, she wakes up in Perryville Prison in Arizona, and she says she's suicidal. And the doctor doesn't believe her. And to shut her up, they take her and they put her in this outdoor holding pen, which is literally an exposed cage in the desert. And they left her there. And she cried, and she begged for water, and she messed herself. In the end, she collapsed. By the time they called an ambulance, she had been cooked. No one was ever criminally punished for what happened to Marsha Powell, because in our culture, addicts' lives don't matter. You know, the guy who ran that prison, Chuck Ryan, he's the guy who was in charge of Abu Ghraib at the time of the, the Abu Ghraib scandal in Iraq for, for the Bush administration. And I then went and tracked down you know, who Marsha Powell's, who she was. And I went and found the father of her children, and it was this heartbreaking story, just like Billie Holiday. You know, she was thrown out of home when she was 13. She'd lived on the beach. She was a child prostitute. She was stunning her grief. She was in terrible pain. She actually had a period of her life, quite a long period, when she got clean, and she went back to Arizona to get her kids back because they'd been taken into state care. And she was busted for an old marijuana charge and her whole life fell apart again. And you just think, you know, her, her, her part, former partner, Rich Hussman, said to me in Missouri, he said, yeah, I can't, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, she just needed some help. And I just, I really stayed with me. And when I went to Portugal and I saw these addicts with their, in Switzerland where they prescribe heroin and they really treat addicts compassionately, I would see these people's lives turned around and I would think of Marsha Powell and I would think of Billie Holiday and I would think of Bud Osborne, I would think of my own relatives and I would just think, God, this doesn't, none of that had to happen, you know? There's a much better way that saves money, that works well, that actually helps people to turn their lives around. And in a way, that's kind of an optimi optimism-giving thing, because I don't think it's a depressing book. I actually leave this feeling really optimistic. There's some things you look at it and you think, oh, God, this is just an irreconcilable human tragedy. There's a solution to this. You know, of course, there'll still always be tragedies in any situation, but there's a, a proven policy that massively reduces those tragedies. And what an amazing thing to know. What an amazing opportunity to be in a position where we can change this. This show is supported by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on my website. If you'd like to learn more about the misguided and racist underpinnings of the war on drugs, I recommend the book Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, which is sure to change the way you think about the nature of addiction and drug use. It's available on Audible and can be yours for free by signing up at Audible 
bibleplacastpodcast.com slash best, or I might add by visiting your local library. This is your brain on the war on drugs. A new report from the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice adds to the growing body of evidence that legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana does not lead to any number of doomsday scenarios envisioned by legalization opponents, according to the Washington Post. Looking specifically at California, the report finds that marijuana decriminalization in California has not resulted, this is a quote, has not resulted in harmful consequences for teenagers, such as increased crime, drug overdose, driving under the influence, or school dropout. In fact, California teenagers showed improvements in all risk areas after the decriminalization of marijuana. Most notable is the drop in school dropout rates. Recent studies have suggested links between heavy marijuana use and low school completion rates, but many experts question the direction of causality in those figures, suggesting that there could be any number of confounding factors that account for the relationship. The numbers above suggest skepticism about plummeting about claims of plummeting academic achievement says the post in fact as the report's authors write by a variety of measures california's teenage behaviors actually improved dramatically after marijuana was effectively legalized improvements that occurred more weekly or not at all among older californians and among teenagers nationwide including states that haven't changed their marijuana laws no causality indicated either way in the two years since full-scale decriminalization went into effect, uh, this sky hasn't fallen, and adding to a mounting body of research that shows teen drug and alcohol use continues to fall, even as more states decriminalize marijuana. States with medical marijuana laws haven't seen any upsurge in teen marijuana use. States with medical marijuana have actually seen decreases in prescription drug overdoses. In Alaska, where personal marijuana use has been de facto legalized for nearly 40 years, It's completely average on a variety of economic and demographic indicators, and traffic fatalities in Colorado have fallen since marijuana was legalized there. On the other hand, a 2012 Duke University study made international headlines when it purportedly found a link between heavy marijuana use and IQ decline among teenagers. Other researchers questioned the findings almost immediately. Columbia University's Carl Hart noted the very small sample size in the study, led him, leaded him, hello, to question how generalizable the results were. A follow-up study published six months later in the same journal found the Duke paper failed to account for a number of confounding factors. Quote, although it would be too strong to say the results have been discredited, the methodology is flawed and the causal inference drawn from the results premature, was the conclusion of that study. Now, a new study out from University College London, even stronger evidence that the Duke findings were flawed. A considerably larger sample of adolescents than the Duke research, 2,600 children born near Bristol in the UK in 1991 and 92. Researchers examined their IQ scores at age 8 and again at 15 and found no relationship between cannabis use and lower IQs at age 15. When confounding factors such as alcohol use, cigarette use, maternal education and others were taken into account, even heavy marijuana use wasn't associated with IQ. Except for Cheech and Chong. No, please now. Come on. In particular, alcohol use was found to be alcohol use was found to be strongly associated with IQ decline, the authors write. No other factors were found to be predictive of IQ change. Did they check television? The UK study does find evidence of slightly impaired educational abilities among the very heaviest marijuana users. 
They scored roughly 3% lower on school exams taken at age 15 or 16, even after adjusting for the confounding factors. I blame the exams. This is your brain on the war on drugs. In my lazy boy, just watching my TV, there's something that the newsman can't explain to me. Maybe I'm just paranoid as I set my reaper down. If there's a war on drugs going on, how come they're all around? But we're winning the war on drugs, we're winning the war on drugs. Praise the Lord and pass the ball, we're winning the war on drugs. You can grow them in your backyard or score them off the thugs. Put your hands against the car, we're winning the war on drugs. There's an increasingly significant contrast or disparity between state laws and federal marijuana laws. Some states have started to have, uh, for years now, medical marijuana, decriminalized or even legalized recreational marijuana, even though this is still illegal at the federal level. And then we have all these questions that come up. For example, will feds proactively enforce federal marijuana laws in states where it is legal? Or what about medical marijuana? What about uh, decriminalized recreational marijuana? And it creates what's this uh, really inefficient, uh, aside from silly patchwork of conflicting laws. There's another issue that's been going on because of the federal illegality of marijuana, uh, and that's this banking issue. I've told you about how increasingly marijuana businesses in states where it is legal or decriminalized, medical, etc., have a really hard time getting a bank to work with them. And as a result, they end up having tons of cash on hand. So one of the problems that's obvious when you have so much cash on hand, and it's known that you have cash on hand, is that you become a target for those who would want to steal that cash. There's a new bill at the national level that would legalize medical marijuana. So this is not recreational, but it is at least for the time being a bill to to recognize federally the legality of medical marijuana. It would end the federal prohibition on medical marijuana, and it would also remove some of this ambiguity regarding the state laws that conflict. And this was introduced by Senators Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, Cory Booker, Democrat from New Jersey, and Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat from New York. Kind of an interesting coalition of, of elected officials there. It would first and foremost untie the hands of doctors when it comes to recommending medical marijuana, particularly when we look at veterans doctors who are bound by the VA and federal laws, they would be allowed to recommend medical marijuana. It would also untie the hands of bankers who say, listen, we operate across multiple states and nationally this is still against the law even if in your state it's legal and that would solve this issue of the cash and and the lack of access to banking in addition the uh end of a federal prohibition on medical pot would recognize mar uh, marijuana's medical benefits by switching the classification of the drug from schedule 1 to schedule 2 and this is a really really big deal the federal government has a five-category drug classification system. And the removal from step one, from schedule one, alone doesn't necessarily change the legality of it, aside from the fact that this particular bill does go further and do that. 
Schedule one of the Controlled Substances Act is the most tightly controlled substances, and they are under the umbrella of drugs which have no currently accepted medical use. So moving marijuana from Schedule one to Schedule two would also officially say, at the federal level, we recognize that there is medical usage, there is medical value here to marijuana. So this has been a really big crutch for the anti-legalization movement, which is, hey, you can say whatever you want about maybe it's good for this condition or maybe it's good for that one or we shouldn't criminalize a plant, but it is a Schedule One substance and changing that would be a huge, huge thing. Lastly, the bill would also expand access to medical marijuana to patients in states that have approved limited medical marijuana laws. So there are some states where there uh, are, are broad medical marijuana laws, but in some states there's only been approval of cannabidiol, which is um, a, a substance from marijuana that doesn't produce the high associated with the drug and it's used for treating epileptic seizures. That's, a, that's great, but that's a narrow application. So this would also expand access in some of these states. This is a very good thing. We will see what ultimately happens. We need time to let this uh, uh, sort of foster in the system, and we're going to continue covering it. I'm starting to get the feeling, uh, as we see similar to what's happening with gay marriage, where you just start getting the feeling that there's a certain type of momentum. I'm not saying we're exactly at the same point with marijuana, but we're starting to see some of that momentum, and it would not be surprising at all to me if within 10 years we have full legalization, medical, recreational, etc. All we need is a little bit of momentum. Break down these walls that we built around ourselves. All we need is a little bit of inertia. Break down and tell. Break down and tell that you are the man of the fire, deep in the trees, where no one was looking, should I speak of this, should I speak of this? Hillary Clinton uh, on the campaign trail, there's a lot of crying apparently from the media that they're not getting the access to her that they want. Um, I, I would be more concerned if I thought that there was a media that by having direct access to her would actually bring me some value. I mean, to the extent that I'm seeing any value from the media, it's people are just doing reporting on other aspects of her presidency. I mean, I'm not quite as impressed with the... Um, the stuff from the Clinton Foundation, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it it doesn't tell me much that I don't know from when she said, we were broke when we left the White House. But, you know, credit where credit's due. Apparently, on the campaign trail, Hillary is hearing a lot about Opiate addiction. This is a problem we've talked about on this program a, a decent amount. Because there has been such an overprescription of opioid painkillers 
and then a sort of dysfunctional system in which to wean people off it. It has created a real problem with heroin overdoses because once you're off the opioid painkillers, prescription painkillers, the cheaper way to get that high is to go buy some heroin. Apparently, a CDC study of 28 states found that heroin deaths doubled from 2010 to 2012. Doubled. They increased 39% in 2013 from the year before, hitting uh, nearly 8,300. Apparently, Vermont's governor devoted his entire 2014 state of the spe state speech to heroin. In New York City, there are more heroin deaths than homicides. And apparently, Clinton has been hearing a lot about this on the campaign trail. Now, she's just been in New Hampshire and Iowa, <laughs> which you don't necessarily associate with huge heroin problems. But she's now starting to speak about, well, let me just quote from what she said at a, I guess, a recent uh, roundtable in New Hampshire. There is a hidden epidemic. We know the drug use problem, whether it's pills or meth or heroin, is not as visible as 30 years ago when there were all kinds of gangs and violence. What kind of opportunities do they have for treatment? I am convinced that mental health issues, because I consider substance abuse part of mental health issues, is going to be a big part of my campaign, because increasingly it's a big issue that people raise with me. So that's a, a fascinating turn of... I mean, just get a notion of what this campaign is going to shape up, where God knows what the Republicans are going to be talking about, Benghazi. I'm even talking about the primary. Benghazi, I guess, and emails. Hillary Clinton's going to be talking about things like um, incarceration reform, drug law reform. And meanwhile, Bernie Sanders on Tuesday was doing a uh, AMA on Reddit and Ask Me Anything. And he did not explicitly say that he should, we should legalize uh, marijuana or decriminalize it, although he did say this relative to the time that he was mayor in Burlington, Vermont. I can tell you very few people were arrested for smoking marijuana. And he was mayor... 25, 30 years ago? Our police had more important things to do. He's watching the situation in Colorado very closely, he says, and Colorado has led the effort toward legalizing marijuana. I'm going to watch closely to see the pluses and minuses of what they've done. I'll have more to say about this issue within the coming months. So there you have it. Both Bernie and Hillary on drugs on the campaign trail. Parents hear me, get your kids in there, and they're to up. Before they hear about marijuana, dear, that's a gateway drug. Cheryl.
Cheryl. If they offer it, just say nah-uh. Or you'll be sharing heroin with derelicts with angel dust. Probably do cocaine as such. That stuff is so dangerous. Would have to have our whole entire congregation pray for us. Cheryl, don't be giggling. Daryl, take your riddling. Kid, you've got your mother so worked up. I need my pill again. A milligram, a bit of gin. I think I'll have a drink or ten. Wouldn't need it if your fucking father wasn't in the pen. Pastor said we should forgive him, but I know he'll sin again. Locked away for using pot. See what that shit did to him? Right away in general pop. Never see you kids again. Smoked a lot. My God, I'll probably drop dead of carcinogens. Kids, if you do drugs, you'll end up exactly like him. Then now, Daryl, be a good, good boy and get your mom her bike again. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, free victims of the drug war with the Drug Policy Alliance. President Obama stepped up his pardons earlier this year by commuting the sentences of 22 federal prisoners convicted of nonviolent drug offenses being served under what the administration called a, quote, outdated sentencing regime, unquote. As Tremaine Lee reported for MSNBC.com, the president described the power of commutation as embodying, quote, the basic belief in our democracy that people deserve a second chance, unquote. For what are most certainly widely varying reasons, bipartisan conversations have begun seeking to tackle the injustices of decades-old mandatory minimum and three-strikes laws, which have led to the overcrowding of our nation's prisons and the fulfilling of the greedy dreams of private prison CEOs. In his statement on the commutations, the president acknowledged both the social good and the financial imperative of fixing the broken system. Quote, Well, here's the good news. There is an increasing realization on the left, but also on the right politically, that what we're doing is counterproductive. We're all responsible for at least a solution to this, unquote. As the predictably slow wheels of potential congressional action turn, there is good news. This is another situation where the White House holds significant unilateral power. The Drug Policy Alliance is campaigning to pressure the president on additional commutations, which should be an easy sell as he's already established a clemency initiative to encourage individuals sentenced under the draconian drug laws to petition for commutation. You can join with the Drug Policy Alliance by visiting drugpolicy.org slash action and contact the the White House through their free Victims of the Drug War page. You can also follow their hashtag No More Drug War and use it to publicly share that you're participating in the campaign to free those wrongly and cruelly incarcerated. As the Drug Policy Alliance letter-writing page explains, the White House is starting to listen on this issue. Now is the time to build momentum by asking the President to continue a process he began and not leave the work unfinished for an incoming administration. The time is now. The segment No include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources and as always this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com if freeing victims of a political campaign to pathologize drug use and fill private prisons matters to you be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the drug policy alliances campaign via social media so that others in your network can show their support too can you stand up and be counted there's a body in a crowd Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change There are two federal agencies that are at odds with one another when it comes to the issue of medical marijuana. Now, the Department of Justice recently said that they will go after individuals who are using medical marijuana 
especially because it goes against federal laws regarding pot. Now, at the same time, there's another federal agency that has said that marijuana does have medicinal value. Hmm. Remember that pot is a Schedule I drug, which means that it is recognized to have absolutely no medicinal value, right? However, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, issued a revised report for the month of April stating recent animal studies have shown that marijuana can kill certain cancer cells and reduce the size of others. Evidence from one animal study suggests that extracts from whole plant marijuana can shrink one of the most serious types of brain tumors. Research in mice showed that these extracts, when used with radiation, increased the cancer-killing effects of the radiation. So here you have a government agency saying, yes, marijuana does have medicinal value, and at the same time, the Department of Justice is saying, yeah, we don't really care that much about state laws. Uh, we're still going to go after individuals who get caught with possession of marijuana. I mean, if you're trying to uh, prevent or at least some way help fight against brain tumors, you need to be put in prison. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so look, let's just uh, call a spade a spade, okay? Uh, you're a dangerous criminal uh, partaking in a gateway drug. Imagine if you go down that chain and you start using other drugs, how dangerous it could be for you. Like maybe you could even get a brain tumor. There is so much out there that proves that marijuana does have medicinal value. And now you have a government, federal government agency saying, yes, it does have medicinal value. And at the same time, the Department of Justice, which, by the way, agreed that they would not go after people for pot, now somehow reneged on that, and they say that they will go after individuals for pot. Yeah, so um, this is why it's comical when most of the mainstream media uh, won't criticize the government. Right, Republicans say this, Democrats say that. Uh, Snowden is guilty. The American government's always right. The Pentagon's never lied to you. But here, you have two parts of the government that are contradicting one another. So, whose ass do you want to kiss? Mm -hmm. Right. And so, why isn't everybody pointing out this contradiction, saying like this doesn't make any sense? So the government says pot has no medicinal value, and that's why it's a Schedule One drug. Except the government also says it clearly has medicinal value. Yeah. Right? So obviously the government is wrong. Oh! <gasps> Turns out the government can be wrong about something. So it's going to take some time, but I think that overall this is actually a good story because the fact that there is a government agency admitting that there's medicinal value shows that there's progress being made on this issue. And so eventually, I don't know if it's in the next five years, I don't know if it's in the next ten years, I don't know if it's sooner than all of that. At some point, it's going to be legal, and it's going to be legal for more than just medicinal use, and then it'll be great. Yeah, look, of course pot has some downsides. We've covered them on the show. But it has more upsides than almost any drug I've ever seen that people use recreationally, generally speaking, uh, to get some sort of buzz. Right. Can you imagine if alcohol had all these positive side effects? You know, from time to time, you'll see a glass of wine might help you, etc., right? Mm -hmm. But overall, we drink the alcohol to get drunk, right? Now pot gets you a nice high, and apparently has all these positive effects. Come on, for Christ's sake, legalize it already. Hey, Jay. This is Ruben calling from San Jose again. 
I wanted to address the issue of what sort of progress, what is the progressive answer to standardized testing and stuff like that. I wanted to offer more critique first in the form of uh, Paul Freire's The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. He talks about how it's, it's problematic to just view students as the vessel by which teachers like fill, that students as the vessels which teachers fill, right? Because it is it presumes that students don't have something to contribute to the um, pedagogical space. So I think the answer is to change our educational model to one that is more dialectical, where students and teachers occupy similar space. That is to say, they both teach and learn. That's not to say that teachers should be wholly subordinate to their students, but there should be more credit given to the student to um, fill the educational space with their own experiences and contributions. You know, there, of course there's something to be gained by the students vis-a-vis -vis the teachers in the form of uh, increased experience, various assignments and stuff like that. But the problem that we're facing right now is that we posit that students have a certain amount of information that they must gain from the educational space in order to be effective individuals. It discredits all of the education that they already possess on an individual level and contributes to that sense that students don't feel as competent or effective in the classroom. With regards to current standardized testing, we know that it favors, it privileges whiteness and socioeconomic status. So if we are to try and establish a uh, test in order to assess like where people are generally educationally, intellectually, I think it should not predetermine whether or not they move forward, but it should just serve as a like uh, like a metric. And what's more is that our educational model should just sort of revolve around people learning things as opposed to trying to determine what is and isn't important for people to learn and whether or not they know enough of those necessary things in order to advance along their educational path. I, in my educational opinion, think that schools should be specialized more towards your individual interests. That's not to say that you shouldn't be maybe ob obliged in certain sense to take certain like core classes, but the thrust of education should be on getting you as well versed in the things that you really care about insofar as those things don't contribute to other people's oppression or marginalization. Also, on the issue of feminism, or not so much feminism, but like boys will be boys and the oppression of that is, you know, uh, patriarchy and ingraining that into people. I uh, grew up in a household where like Arnold Schwarzenegger was my favorite, was my role model, you know? And I, I had this conversation recently with my friends that like Arnold Schwarzenegger is ostensibly like an Aryan super soldier, you know, that indiscriminately kills the bad guys with very little remorse and it's actually satisfying to see him do that, you know? It had a profound psychological effect on me and I think it uh it shaded a lot of my like interactions like there were there were a lot of times in in school not just in school but like in life especially as a kid where like I hurt people 
expecting to like gain social capital from it, but it was just, it was a disaster, right? You never like, you know, there's no social capital in a normal, uh, like in, in an ordinary day to day interaction. There's, there's very little social capital to be gained from injuring somebody. And yet, from media, we, we get that constantly, you know, like you hurt people, people respect you for it. The opposite is true, right? Nobody really wants to be around or, you know, like, thanks the bully. But in movies, because they're dominated by a very specific group of people, you, you get taught the wrong thing, you know. The same thing is true of sexual violence, you know. Uh, the, only, the only problem therein being is that we have a justicism that's also shaded by the oppressive norm so like where you may suffer in certain respects for it ultimately you're um, absolved of guilt by merit of the fact that in 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 the minds of the people who get to make the decision at the end you will be okay you'll be taken care of and that's where we see uh, a rape apologism manifest itself in the uh, forum of like justice and the execution of justice. Thanks for taking the call. Sorry if I took a little long. Hey Jay, this is Julie. I'm from Boston and I work my ass off and the government takes a ton of money out in taxes every week. It's like at the point where I'm living paycheck to paycheck, but if I wasn't getting taxes taken out, I would be fine. It would be great. So hearing about these corporations that aren't paying their taxes, that really pissed me off. But hearing about these banks is even worse. And the fact that the federal government, like, I guess hasn't stepped up and done something about it. Like, what the fuck is the point of living in America if these corporations aren't paying their taxes? Like, why am I paying taxes? It just pisses me off so much. Because, you know, the people who are making the most money should be doing their fair share. Because there's plenty of people like me who are working their fucking asses off. And so much of it goes to the government. And I see so little results. I don't, I, I don't fucking know, man. But anyway, I love your show. And I just really need to vent. So, thanks. Bye. Hello, Jay. Chuck in Salt Lake City. Hey, Paul, to say thanks for discussing my education concerns on the air. Um, I'm super happy that decentralization came up in your solution because, you know, it's something I'm a super big advocate of here, and I think that the school districts are the ones who are uh, uh, pushing the agenda of focusing uh, certain revenues in their areas due to their property tax, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I agree to totally with you that the discussion doesn't require a solution, and I hope we didn't, you know, I hope you didn't feel like I disagreed with you there. It's probably just a result of the, uh, you know, the constant debate I have to get into uh, where I live, and you kind of always have to have, like, a solution in the back of your mind, but... I also hope the uh, other listeners also listeners also caught the uh, the slightly circular effect you had when you still didn't mention where the money came from. I fear that a cart before the wagon effect might occur if we team up with the conservatives to detach school from property. It seems to me that decentralization should come first and is also an issue of expenditure, not revenue. Uh, so we still haven't you know we still haven't talked about the. The revenue issue, and I certainly, uh, you're not my senator, so <laughs> I don't expect you to come up with that, but I thought it was good food for thought, and I hope the other listeners caught, uh, caught the fact that we still didn't, you know, decentralization in itself doesn't solve the, the revenue problem that states have. 
thanks so much. Uh, I love talking about education. I hope we can uh, hope we can fix this, you know, together. Even if it does mean teaming up with conservatives, I guess I'm just always a little bit wary of them. Anyway, thanks again, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, I just have one more quick response to Chuck about education funding, because it kind of ties together a lot of the recent conversations. And so, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but how about we cut all the funding to the drug war and put that towards education instead? Or maybe even just taxing corporations and the wealthy at a sane rate again, as we just heard Julie talking about, instead of running this race to the bottom, cutting taxes further and further at every opportunity. I mean, as I was talking about the other day, if you want to solve the problem of how to treat trans people in prison, you must also solve the problem of the war against marginalized communities in all of its forms. If you want to solve the problem of the educational system, you must also solve the problem of the social safety net, maybe by starting with a universal basic income. If you want to solve the problem of funding education in particular, you must also solve the problem of all of the areas where we're wasting money, such as on the drug war, foreign wars, and so on, as well as all the loopholes and the tax code that allow those most able to pay to shirk their responsibility entirely, which in turn means you need to solve the problem of how campaigns are funded in this country, and so on and so on. I mean, as scientist Carl Sagan once put it, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the universe. That's basically where we're at. Now, as we know, it is not difficult to come up with sources of funding when we're going to war, so the precise source of money for education funding is of no real concern to me, because that question will answer itself once we start having the right conversation. That's how I see it. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's